Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Frank Holmes, how are you doing, sir? Outstanding, my friend. Glad to hear it. How are you fighting fit and well? Everything's great. Great in Texas. Great in Texas. You, well, you look very dapper today. I, I, you, you've made an effort. Have you just been on I CNN or something? <laughs> the blue. You're wearing the blue. <laughs> but so tell me this. It, it, I'm fascinated. You might have to be our letter from America just for this interview, if you don't mind. Because we, we've seen a certain kind of optic over here from the press. You know, we've seen America tearing itself apart. Heavily polarized, you know, disjointed uh, country. You've had the election. It's probably over. All by the shouting and a few uh, few court cases. Uh, was it the right result? Well, if you look at history, and if it follows through, that you have a Democratic president, a split Congress, and a Republican Senate, it's the best thing for investors in the stock market. The math is just so compelling statistically. So I hope that nothing changes with the Senate, that it stays Republican. That means any crazy ideas, uh, such as more socialism and regulations and stripping away of your private property rights by incremental increases of regulation, that stuff will get stopped. Uh, but the idea of growth uh, in the economy by a Democratic president is always the best. You're incorrigible, Frank. You're always thinking of making your shareholders money, your investors money, should I say. Um, but I'm trying to understand the politics here because it, see, it did seem to us quite divided. Was there much difference between both parties in reality? Uh, I would think on the, on the fringes, probably much greater contrast. Um, the bulk of the middle is pretty very similar. Uh, like I would say, you know, am I a, a conservative Democrat? which would mean the fiscally, uh, financially conservative, uh, or am I a liberal Republican? I think the bulk of Americans are that way. Uh, but the real far uh, disparities that you have, uh, they get most of the publicity in the news. Right, because I, I it, it, again, it's essentially, we, we're so concerned about you know, this transition period. Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen smoothly? Is there because it gives uncertainty to the market? Okay, obviously is the underlying fact, but it, it's also kind of comical that it, it th there isn't that certainty. You know, we're we're looking in as outsiders, going, "Come on, this is the leader of the of the of the free world here." When 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 Trump first became president, uh, I was attending a conference for hedge funds uh, and. Uh, it was interesting because the one of the keynote speakers was Barnanke, who just re, retired from head of the Federal Reserve. And, and he shocked everybody. And he said that um, that Trump is going to be much more like Jimmy Carter. And, you, and everyone was like, how could you say that? And he said, whenever you have the president of America take on the Beltway Party, he said that all of a sudden you get the, the heads of regulatory bodies, you get the lobbyists and the media attacking that president. And they will attack Trump just the way they attacked uh, Jimmy Carter. And so I thought that was the most uh, thought revealing to me, uh, take home, and I've talked about it many times. I never heard of it that way, uh, but this Beltway party is very powerful. Uh, and, and same with the unions that represent federal uh, employees. Uh, they're out there, it's like seven million. 
Uh, they're very significant and doesn't matter if it was Carter or it was Trump. They both took on that party and they're basically pushed out. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, do you think it was fair on Carter? Was that, so again, reading oh, history, yeah. you're, a, you're a historian, right? You know, you, you, you like reading about these things. Um, but looking back now, did, was it fair? Was it, was it fair? Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't old enough when Jimmy Carter was president really to digest, I think, to understand geopolitics to a degree. Even though I've been working at the time, really to put, to make an opinion on that. Um, but I think it, uh, President Trump went after uh, the Green Movement, uh, which is basically a religion in Europe. Uh, if you take a look at the code and et cetera, and how it functions, uh, and as uh, Doug uh, Casey likes to call it, it's, it is the new religion. Uh, and I get a chuckle of that, but there is a thought process. The president took that on. He took on China's bullying and what they're doing in, in Asia. Uh, he took on North Korea. All the things that you wouldn't expect. He also pushed to have the Germany held accountable for NATO spending uh, and, and write, you know, write a check. Uh, you want to be protected. So all those things made everyone uncomfortable. Um, but he sent less people, less soldiers into combat than Obama did. Uh, and that was part of his mandate. Uh, his mandate was very much like uh, Ross Perot. I think that he was just a better charismatic person, you not believe it, but than Ross Perot was. Uh, but if you take a look at his tax policies, everything that Trump went out and pushed really is what Ross Perot had pushed. Okay, you're sounding like a Republican, but you're wearing a blue tie. Did you care who won? No, I was asked so often, the red button or the blue button? I said, no, the gold button. <laughs> it's the gold button I'm pushing. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's, well, we'll get to the gold. Don't worry, we will. Um, so, okay, Biden comes in. It's a brand new world. What do relationships with Europe look like? What does it, because, you know, I think China will expect less volatility, but there'll, there'll be some, a tougher stance there, I, I, I suspect. But what, what do you think those, do you think it's like getting back to normal? Is that what's going to happen? Normal uh, relations resumed? Well, I, I sure, for sure. Uh, Biden is all pro-green, so that automatically make everyone feel great in Europe. Uh, raise a trillion dollars of green bonds, you know, so that, that process uh, will make everyone feel safer now. Um, there'll be always rhetoric against China and Russia, but the difference with, with um, Trump was that Trump actually pulled a button and uh, pushed the button uh, on trade. Uh, he slapped on tariffs. Before it was always lots of talk, there was never a real slap on tariffs. So I don't think you're gonna have that. I think it'd be the same rhetoric, but the real call to action will be muted. Okay. Well, I guess I, I, we're, we're intrigued here because obviously nothing starts till, you know, January when Biden gets in here. But there's, I think there's an expectation here in Europe that there'll be a little bit normalcy um, to, you know, trade. We've got the things like, the, as you say, the, you know, the, the green economy, the, the Paris Agreement, things like that, that get coming back into the world health organization all of these kind of feel good things for sure but i'm more interested in what it will do for trade will trade be resumed and is that is that good in terms of stabilizing people's fears uh about the way the world's going to be going forward and you know obviously you're going to tell me what uh, that's going to do for gold i suspect well i think you just got to follow the money uh, that's more important than 
than all the rhetoric you get in the media that manipulate your emotions. Uh, that's really uh, what the quant world is 70% of all trading and they're pretty well agnostic to the political party. They're looking at government policies and in all my perspectives, you'll see government policy, we believe that government policies are precursor to change. So we monitor both monitoring fiscal policies and to try to make a determination of where money will flow. Uh, and clearly, uh, money will shift now and the mandates uh, come under Biden and it'll be green. Uh, our global resource fund, something we've done, uh, which we're beating all the, most of these indexes they have because they're so weighted towards old uh, energy, we're the new energy and it's crushing it. Uh, so I, I think that that theme is going to go. Alternative source of energy are gonna become much more important. Uh, I think there'll be lots of investment opportunities. Uh, we had a huge run up under Obama. Interesting enough, Obamacare and all the attacks on it, but some of the healthcare stocks were the best performers during Obama's reign. And uh, so I think that that all of a sudden will brush off and healthcare be consumed with that. Um, but right now, I think we're gonna see a muted information on COVID, uh, whatever they wanna call it, uh, coronavirus uh, 19, 20, I don't, it's really not material to me. What's material is, is how they're dealing with these issues. So let's take a look what's happening in the world right now. The world has spent $7 trillion in the US, the Fed balance sheet. When, when Greenspan left, the Fed's balance sheet was 6% of the GDP. Today, it's 33%. There's unprecedented money printing. Negative real interest rates out of Europe, a use of what's called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. It's being practiced in unison with the G20 countries, like a cartel. So this is making gold so interesting as an asset class, but it's not just gold, it's real assets. Real estate's up 10% here in the U.S. in the past year. Uh, art uh, is also up substantially. So one has to take a look at first mover advantages. Go where the government policies are. They're going to be printing lots of money. Uh, they've, they've basically become addicted to MMT. And it's being practiced all over the world. And since it's been growing in precedence, being used, uh, we're seeing gold as a great asset class. So for the past 21 years of this century, gold has been up 80% of the time. So having a 10% weighting in gold is only wise and prudent. But every time I go on the New York City, Bloomberg's, uh, particularly more CNBC, it's always negative on gold. But gold has been a great performer. This year, it's going to outperform the S&P 500. Again, we're seeing now for the past 21 years, it's outperformed 300% greater. So that's why I push the gold button. Forget the red or blue, it's the gold button. Yeah, but I can understand. You, like you, you, you've got to talk your playbook, right? And when you go on, when you go on to these shows, um, you know, what are they expecting you to say? They're, they're, they're bringing you on to talk up gold. So why, why do you find their reaction muted? Oh, no, 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 they don't talk up gold. Gold has gone too far. And if gold's falling, we bring you on because didn't I tell you that gold would fall? Uh, and that's why I always publish the DNA of volatility of bullion. It's actually the same DNA of the S&P 500. One day, 10 days, one month, it's the same DNA of volatility. Gold stocks are much more volatile than uh, the S&P 500, just like biotechnology is much more volatile. So no, I, I think that I find out of Europe, there's much more of a, uh, an understanding of gold as a part of an asset class when I'm in, when I was last in London to do CNBCs in the world or Asia, uh, it's a complete different perspective on gold as an asset class. 
But do you not think? But at the same time, there's this this human reaction to it, which is, I need safe haven, I need gold, I need security around that. Not everyone understands that. Not everyone can get access to it. And you're talking to me the language of cartels, you know, change, you know, managing how we behave, managing economies, managing the printing of money. It's a very terrifying world for the average person, let alone the average investor. Yes, but um, you can still make money with it. The whole thing, the concept of gold being manipulated, uh, and it usually happens when there's Chinese holidays. Uh, and now there's been big fines uh, been passed out by the, the big banks beside LIBOR. It's also the world of gold. And so therefore, is it all manipulated? Well, it's only short term that's manipulated. It's very short term, and if you understand the volatility of the math, you can use it to your favor, is what I believe. Uh, but longer term, gold has been an important asset class, and I think what's a real pivot change, what we're seeing is that, is that Warren Buffett finally bought a gold stock. But investors should know why he did that, uh, and, and what was the, sort of the personality of a gold stock. We bought Barrett because it's big and liquid, but he bought a great CEO. He likes betting on the jockeys. But they have this magic word called free cash flow yield. And the S&P a year ago had a free cash flow yield of 2.5%. The average gold stock didn't. Today they do. And Barrick this year is having high free cash flow yields. So you're seeing a thought process by all of a sudden Berkshire Hathaway playing gold stocks and a great company like Barrick. I think that that will change the mindset of many people anti-gold and gold stocks all of a sudden discovering, well, what other gold stocks have faster growth than Barrick or have a, a high free cash flow yield? And we're witnessing today, because we track 100 gold boosts in the world, more of them announcing free cash flow yields. Okay. But again, you're, you're talking, and we said at the beginning, we'd, we'd kind of do a bit of a role play here. But again, because the questions we get sent in are quite simple. You're talking complicated sets of analysis using variable, variables that most people don't. Like, as far, for instance, the beginning of this year, you thought it was going to be a regular year. There was a little bit of a reset in the marketplace, and you thought that's the worst thing that's going to happen this year. And then along comes COVID, and you know, you, you, you worked in your favor for for sure. But the the regular investor, how do they go about setting out work, working out where to place their bets, where to place their money? You know, are are we intelligent enough to do that, or do we need to be putting our money into funds like yours or similar, uh, because it's going to be a lot easier if we believe your thesis, that is. Well, it's a pretty binary thing based on age. And, and um, when you look at if I'm 50 years old or I'm 30 years old or I'm 70 years old. So if you're 50 years old, 50% in bonds, short-term bonds, 50% into equities, 10% uh, of the portfolio in gold and gold stocks. Uh, but th that's a separate part of it, but it's basically a 50-50. If I'm 70, I should be 70% in short-term income uh, and 30% long equities. Uh, if I'm 30 years old, I should be much more exposed to equities. Uh, and, and so that's a sort of simple, each year as you get older, you're taking money off the table, you're speculating less on um, between your bond exposure, your equity exposure. I think for your investors that you're listening on this, on this program, what you'll understand is that the G20 countries, their finance ministers and their central bankers quite often last longer than even the presidents and prime ministers of the countries, uh, the central bankers in particular. And, and you think of Greenspan went through many presidents. Uh, and, and there's now a very strong collusion that I would call it a collection of 
of sharing around the world. And we saw this in 2001, where the G20 countries, central bankers, all of a sudden became consumed with synchronized trade, global trade. China boomed. Uh, Chindia, affectionately known as China and India, boomed. We had this huge secular run up to 2008. And after 2008, 2009, the massive financial correction that affected the world, all of a sudden the G20 became synchronized taxation and regulation. That was the sort of narrative. Now what we've had is this war on this invisible virus. And this war is basically said they're all printing money. And since all this money printing has been taking place uh, and the methodologies are very similar, uh, you're seeing that real assets are surging. So I, I think that you have to take a look from a geopolitical, how they're moving on a big picture, and they're going to do everything to keep the global economy going, trillions of dollars each cycle. Do you know a trillion seconds is, is, is like 30 centuries? I mean, a trillion dollars is like nothing for people. But if you talk about time, it's a long period of time. So we have to put this conception in our mindset. There's a lot of money being slushed around and it's showing up in where's this high yield. So we have Switzerland. Switzerland floats a negative real uh, interest rate. That is, you're going to lose money on this bond. So only the government buys it. Then they go buy Apple stock. They buy Apple stock. They buy U.S. corporations. They buy Microsoft. Uh, Japan, 15% of the Japanese market is owned through an ETF by the, by the central bank. In the U.S., they can't own individual shares. So what do they do to get rates down in America? They came and started buying muni bonds uh, through ETFs. They started buying corporate bonds through ETFs. So they're getting those rates down to keep the economy going. This is a brand new world. So for your investors, they want to be looking for stocks that have rising revenue per share, rising cash flow per share. And they're the stocks that have outperformed this year. It's very easy to see. Gold stocks have also done very well because they have rising revenue, rising cash flow. Free cash flow is the magic word, basically is simple. I have a salary, I get all my deductions, uh, then I have my payments, what am I left over with? If I have nothing left over with, I don't have free cash flow. If I have extra money I can turn around and, and uh, buy a new car or do whatever I want to spend it, that's free cash flow. So when we get industries that have this this lovely word called free cash flow, uh, they're the stocks that get bid up and it's recognizing that. See, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because if obviously the coronavirus has shaped our economies globally. You know, we've all been impacted here, but people behave in very predictable ways in times of, like this. And I'm wondering, um, you know, because you... You know, you as a company, you as your fund, you have lots of clever people uh, who work for you and they analyze all these variables. Um, how, how much does the globalism versus populism component change the way that you think? Because it wasn't really a thing four years ago, but I think people are recognizing populism is in the psyche here somewhere and, and it had been ignored. So does that come into your thinking in terms of analyzing a where you should be looking in 2021, 2025? Well, I think the basic is, is populism is used uh, like political correctnesses uh, to whoever a party wants an advantage. So um, it, it's, it has a negative connotation and uh, it, it, it's, it's really a distraction. Uh, I, I think you want to go back to 
Maslow's hierarchy of need is really simple. People want to feel safe. Most important, physically safe, financially safe. Uh, and I would think anything is a concept of safety is so key and, and that basic. So we take a look at this border between Texas and Mexico. Well, the Republican won along the border. Well, all the negative stuff about the border and Trump's doing it. Guess what? Those people living close to the border, you're not living beside it. I'm closer to than you. I don't really know, but the people there voted for someone that they feel is going to protect them. So I think that happens with investing. Um, and I think that most people around the world really don't think about free cash flow, but even with their personal account, about investing in growth. Your audience does. Uh, and that's what's really important. And I think another big shift that, that we have to take a look is at the demographics of millennials. That we're going to witness over the next 20 years, the greatest shift, something like $10 trillion is going to shift from baby boomers, my age, over to the millennials, $10 trillion. And those millennials have a different type of prioritizing. They all want to make money, how they get their information. I'm a big believer that this mythic two that came out of Europe, it's a sort of a socialism of financial markets, et cetera, has been a disaster in the UK for, for uh, retail investors. They've been orphaned uh, to get information. They, they thought it was going to be good, but it's not, has done nothing to help them get information. But these millennials are much more tech savvy. And it reminds me of the 90s when uh, the internet boom took off and all of a sudden everyone, just baby boomers, discovered mutual funds. And now we're seeing millennials discover uh, ETFs and individual stocks. And you have a phenomenon that's happened on the Robinhood where they can buy no commissions and they can buy fractions of a the share. They've been able to digitize a share down so that you didn't have to buy a full lot, 100 shares or 1,000 shares. This is huge in dollar terms because what we've witnessed is more money has come from millennials. And when they got those checks from President Trump, that money mostly went into the stock market. Where do they get the information? From these interviews, YouTube. Uh, they're listening to podcasts because they don't have information. Mythic 2 has hurt the distribution of research. A billion dollars in the US of research analysts have been cut, lost their jobs. So they're much more savvy going around looking for information. And we've experienced that with our Jets ETF. The Jets ETFs had something like 25,000 of these millennials come into the airlines ETF before Trump, I mean, sorry, Trump, but before all the negative news took place of Buffett, uh, anti the airlines, and then they jumped 50%. Millennials are pretty savvy what they're doing. Today, the airlines are up large because of vaccine uh, success. And, and, and I think that, that you have to realize we have new investors, no commissions. Very different when we start in the business, the commissions are very high, today is zero. They all want to make money. They're all, all of a sudden, the numbers are huge. And that's so important for price discovery. So what I found from my Jets ETF, as the minnows came into this ecosystem, all of a sudden, the tunas came in, the whales came in, the dolphins came in. That is, hedge funds started shorting airlines, but they used jets as a proxy to mitigate their risk. They would go long our jets and short, say, American Airlines or EasyJet. They didn't like EasyJet or Ryanair. They would make that position, but they were using that. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, so anyone around the world could turn around and buy it. So that's a thing that we notice. You need to have price discovery, and then other money comes into that particular asset class. I think that we're going to see 
more of these millennials want ESG because they want to feel they want to make money, but they want to know that it's got some governance to it. And two, they're much more keen to buy ETFs. Um, and the other part is that Robinhood is the only one that has a toolbar which has gold as an asset class. Now that's really shocking me. Schwab doesn't have it. TD Waterhouse doesn't have it. And now all these other platforms are allowing no commission trading uh, ETFs and stocks. So we have a new world and people want to feel safe, but they also want to get rich. And the millennials are there and they're they're coming in small numbers and it's growing. Okay, I get it. Look, I, thank you for that. There's a lot going on there. I, I agree with you about Mifid T to some degree in the sense that retail been left with no information to be able to access. But that said, it was very biased information that they were uh, able to get access to because the brokers were writing it and they're being paid for by the by the, the company. So, but, but Mifid Two has caused a disruption in the marketplace, not necessarily all good for for retail. But it, let me just sort of, I'll make one last point on this populism component because I, it feels to me like they've been seduced by the simplistic um, themes. Out there, and if you talk about you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, etc., it's you know there's the fear part part of that, and I think people, younger investors today, are slightly terrified about what they're walking into. And I'm interested in you. You've been through a couple of cycles, right? Do you think anything is significantly different other than the way that we consume it? You know, have markets changed that much? Do patterns repeat themselves. You know, people talk about, you know, you know, history repeating and uh, all of that. But is that what you see in terms of, because you've got a team of people there and you kind of, you kind of look for cycles and you look for these themes and patterns and so forth. It's what you do every day of the week. But how do people coming into this, generalists coming into this, the Robin Hood guys are, you know, good case in point. They're very, very media driven. There's social media is a big driver of this. But for people coming into investing today, it it feels like slightly chaotic, doesn't it? No, no. I I think that um, this whole experience of no commissions, being able to get fractional shares, has lowered the barriers to entry for the small investor to come into the marketplace. They've been pushed out. If you look at all the regulatory costs and burden from every investment advisor, uh, it didn't matter where the dimension was, the regulatory world made it so much more difficult and expensive to service people. Uh, I, and I think that what's taking place is very important for, it's much more democratic, uh, it's much more appealing. If you have a classic Sarbanes-Oxley, good intentions, but it was a disaster. The average IPO prior to Sarbanes-Oxley was like 85 million. Now it's 400 million. Well, that's a big run up in uh, capital appreciation that a retail investor can't get a hold of. It's all basically going into private equity or venture capital. How could you turn around and be on the ground floor of a new story? Uh, and, and I think that this sort of concept now is getting more democratized uh, with the Robin Hoods allowing for this. So I remain pretty bullish with that. But you have to remember the DNA of the millennial in America and more like Canada is very different than in Europe. Uh, the, the percentage of people that talk about building their wealth, uh, what they, how they think and function, uh, it's it, they're just... The, the idea of being on the ground floor of Apple, that doesn't, that doesn't resonate uh, with a young kid from Austria, uh, from Italy. You know, that resonates with every young American kid. Uh, and then same thing in Canada, being on the ground floor of a major gold discovery and 
carrying wood because you study geology about this story. It resonates. Uh, so I think we have to go back and look at it that, in that direction. I think the barriers to entry of, uh, like you have in the U.S., is much more expensive still in Europe to encourage retail small millennials to come in and speculate in the market. But there's games played, and that's that's the, I'm here. I think we're here to look after retail investors. Okay, that's what I'd like to think that we're here for. And but there are games played in the marketplace. Everything is rigged against retail investors. Okay, starting with their own mistakes, right? Not doing your homework and not understanding the market you're putting your money into for for sure. But there's a big institutional component, starting with 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 brokers and promoters then through the institutions, which make it really hard for retail to make these kinds of decisions. And that's the fear I'm talking about. It, it seems more complicated, but is it? Is it more complicated than it ever was? You're saying, you're, you're saying no, but this... I don't think so. I think if you get down to a specialist uh, market making uh, day in, day out, it's technology is going to be the key part. But if you understand secular moves, no. Uh, it, 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 it's just an intelligent uh, thought process. What are the f- success factors for picking a stock? There's lots of s- science. Uh, University of Chicago created all these uh, smart beta factors. Uh, you look for momentum. If a company has revenue last quarter over four quarters and has cash flow last quarter over four quarters, and, and mathematically, and it does that for each quarter, the, the stocks take off. We can see that with Amazon, we can see it with Google, uh, we can see with gold stocks. Uh, gold stocks have been a secular bull market now for over 20 months. It's over 20, 22 months now. Uh, only recently has it really woken up that the junior stocks, stocks started really getting a big move. But that person understood the golden cross, the 50-day above the 200-day, and started looking at good quality gold stocks. They've made a ton of money in this cycle. Uh, Eric Sprott made a ton of money in a bear part of the gold cycle by buying a company Kirkland Lake and becoming a chairman by a major share position and its revenue, even during the bear market of gold, last quarter went above the four quarters. Each quarter, it was always trading up. And with cash flow, it had the lowest cost operation in the world. Therefore, it was very profitable. And that stock, even in a bear market, went up. So I think investors can look for those smart factors to pick a stock. At the same time, are you in a bull cycle or a bear cycle? Okay. Secular investing, I can get behind that. I have no problem with that. It's when the data is put out there, which is, should we say, manipulated. Talk to me about CPI numbers. Well, I wouldn't say so, like manipulated. You know, that's government. Uh, they're talking manipulation. But I like to talk about CPI numbers because John Williams with Shadow Stats does a great job of using and points out the older algorithms to make a determination what CPI is. So if you went back to the 1980 CPI formula to determine what inflation is, when gold hit 850 and silver hit $50, $50 an ounce, if you go back to that period, inflation is not 1.3% today, it's actually 8%. So is that fake news? Uh, and I think it's sort of relevant to recognize that there is real inflation. We have the best way to deal with this underbelly uh, uh, I guess the iceberg phenomena that seven eighths is hidden uh, and, and uh, of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. So there is inflation buying real assets for the past 21 years, like gold has been prudent, it's been wise. 
but if you follow CPI numbers, you would say, well, why would I buy gold? Uh, had you, and so I don't think it's so much, um, you know, manipulated by Wall Street or government, et cetera. I think it's your job to just to do your homework and try to dig down and, and, uh, and recognize, are you in a bull cycle or a bear cycle? We are in a bull cycle. And most of the media, until now, I believe the bias of the media, because there's so many psychological biases, because of Biden's been elected, will change the narrative. So unemployment numbers will not be muted. They'll be, if they improve, they'll be all because of the good news. But here's the math. PMI, Purchasing Manufacturers Index, is one of the most favorite indicators I use. I write about it every month because it's a great leading indicator. GDP is looking out the rear view mirror. Most people talk about GDP. I'm talking about future, PMI. The PMI turned positive in China before it did in America with all this money printing. And for the past five months now, global PMI, the one month is above the three month number. And anytime that's above 50, that means the world is growing. And that's great for copper. That's great for job creation. That's also great for gold. And if you have a negative interest rate environment, that's even more bullish for gold. So I think that we just saw the PMIs come out again for China and, in, and sorry, China and America. Well, why is China and America important? They're 40% of the world's trade. So they're the two big gorillas out there. When we talk about consumption, we have to look at China and India because the populations of those two countries are 40% of the world's population. So I always like to go back and forth, trade, consumers, trade and consumers. And I basically have three blocks to look at. Then I get add in the EU block. Uh, that's many different nations, but EU really hasn't turned yet, but they said they're gonna raise, spend another trillion dollars by Christmas uh, to try to maintain the economic boom that's experiencing over here. Uh, I remain very bullish and math also says that if you come into a presidential election and the markets are up, they run to year end. So when President uh, Obama came in against Bush, they were falling. Well, they fell for the year end. This, they're up. Math says you should be long or going to be wrong in this sort of run that we're having. Negative real interest rates is bullish for stocks, especially dividend paying stocks, especially stocks with free cash flow. Uh, and you can see at the S&P 500, those stocks that have tanked, don't have the free cash flow. Those that do are rising. Yeah. Okay. I, look, I, I, like, I like the fundamental side of things. There's also things outside which are going to affect how the market reacts. Two things that happened this week. And the Chinese government closing down that, well, I think it's $37 billion um, IPO. Is that because, and maybe it's a sign how other governments will react, they're nervous of losing control of the financial system. You talked about your cartel at the beginning of this. Is this part of that system? And the Chinese seem very free of that kind of thinking, but what are they nervous about? And will the rest of the world also be nervous? Well, China functions in a completely different narrative. They cherry pick the best of America and Europe to keep economics. There's a two tier system. Uh, for economic growth. I remember Deng Xiaoping created seven tax-free zones in 1978. Uh, that's a very much an American model. And, uh, and so I, 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 if you say anything negative against the Chinese government, then immediately that's what they do. So it, this is much more of uh, uh, the Communist Party flexing their muscle against any billionaire. 
There's another billionaire uh, recently that they put in prison for 17 years because he spoke negative about how they were handling COVID. Um, so the, the rule there, nice thing about uh, US, you could talk whatever you want about the president and same thing in the UK, uh, same thing in Europe, uh, but you can't do that in China and be very careful be, in Russia because they may turn around and make you radioactive. So, <laughs> they do like a bit of plutonium. Um, so you think that was more to do with a degree of free speech and maybe saying the wrong thing as opposed to what the business represented, what Ant Financial represented. Yes, it's political. Okay, okay, fine. Second, I won't, won't push you on that one. Second big bit of news, obviously, there's a vaccine potentially coming down the line. It had a massive impact on some of your, your, your funds, uh, but also the market as a whole. Um, is more of that to come? I, I think that there's a great study done years ago at MIT. And it's about having a perspective, a mindset, a growth mindset. And I think there's other research for bringing up children that came from a, a professor at Stanford uh, on mindset, fixed versus growth. Uh, and and the part, bigger part of that MIT research was if you look at the glass always being half full, the, uh, then you will see opportunities faster. If you're always looking at it being half empty, then you have a fixed, more fixed mindset and you will not see gifts given to you. So the biggest part is to try to look at where's the money going? Why is the money going there? What are the government policies, monetary or fiscal that are setting money up? That's your first mover advantage. Uh, and then it'll be a big um, disruptive technology that which, which can revolutionize an industry. They'll always take place faster in America because there's more sort of social protection in, them in Europe. And then it'll slowly like the Ubers will we have a big boom here, then it'll go to Europe, uh, and then there'll be a ricochet coming back of our boomerang. But I think it's important just to see that disruptive technology is important to look at. Um, but right now, for us, for our airlines ETF, jets, uh, it's, it's all about vaccine. Just leave it on. It's leave about, it on. It's about vaccine. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, a vaccine makes these stocks jump 15% this morning. 15%. It's crazy. Because uh, you've been seeing, if you look, the TSA started publishing this year, how many people they clear every day. A year ago, they were clearing 2.7 million people a day. 700,000 international, 2 million people domestic. In April, that fell down to less than 90,000 people. Today is through a million. So even without flying to Europe or to Asia, America itself has been turning and is more and more. And what they found is, is the big growth has been tourism. Southwest Airlines is now flying from Phoenix to, to Mexico for holidays. Uh, all these cities, small cities in, in, in northern parts of America uh, are getting flights nonstop to Fort Myers uh, because people want to get into the warmer weather. So we're seeing the business travel is not traveling like it was. It's still got a way to go. But tourism is not. So it's through the million. And it's been gradually like this and the airlines and stocks. But a vaccine, boom, up it, it squirts. It, it, it surges is the word I'm looking for. Um, so I, I think that there's where you're going to get the positive news for the for the overall economy. Right. We've allowed you to push gold because that's your thing. You're a gold guy, right? I'm a gold guy, but I'm also, like I'm telling you, they're, they're printing the money. I'll give you another conundrum to most people. Luxury goods. I created the first luxury goods mutual fund in America. The U.S. Lux. 
Everyone okay. said I was nuts. No, 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 I like it. But no, but this is where uh, I want to go, Frank. This is where I want to go. I'm going to let you say, I'm letting you do the sales pitch. But what else should they be looking at? Because tech's had a fantastic year, right? Tech you know what? Like coming back to luxury goods, it shocked me. Like it was, I remember worried now when I was launching this product and will it work or not because of COVID, you know? The, and uh, lo and behold, uh, when you look at most of luxury goods, they're discretionary consumption. Well, Tesla's there. Amazon is there. Two big disruptors, uh, and 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 to, and also relating to the consumer. Uh, and besides Nike and LVMH and Ferrari, Ferrari's announcing spectacular results. So I, I think it's you have to put on that sort of contrarian that those that have the money. One of the things during the the, the lockdown in March uh, is I dro- was driving and, and I noticed that all the parking lots were empty except for Home Depot, packed. So I called the analyst and said, run the model. What's happening here? If there's all these cars parked there and they're empty everywhere else, they've got to be doing revenue and business. Well, all the construction and people were stuck at home, they all of a sudden wanted to re- refix their home. And you saw these stocks has been on a tear. And then I noticed at the stores that were open, uh, Clorox was sold out. And Clorox is another stock, but it's a luxury goods bleach. You can buy 30 cents on the dollar cost-wise cheaper bleach at other discount stores, but that consumer, the discretionary higher net worth person wants to buy Clorox. So there's opportunities, and I think you have the dust off Peter Lynch's book, one up on Wall Street, you have those things that you consume and like, buy it. That is brilliant advice. Basically, put your head up, have a look around and see what people are buying, and then go do some investing of your own. That's fantastic. I love it. Like Zoom, like Zoom. Everyone was on Zoom. Well, it was easy. Go buy the stock. I think, we, I think we've all missed the boat there. Um, <laughs> Frank, thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you as ever. You, you look well, uh, full of, full of life. And I'm glad things are going well for you and uh, the group. Um, love to speak to you again. There's so much to talk to you about. Well, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity and, and reflect and give me views from Europe uh, and perspectives. Well, appreciate it. We've got our view from America, so I'm happy to. Frank, thank you very much. Go have yourself a great day, and we'll speak to you again soon. And remember to look up. That's how high gold's going. Look up. <laughs> man, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.